Welcome back to Every Horror Movie on Netflix, the podcast where we watch, review, and discuss every horror movie on Netflix. As always, I'm Steven. I'm here with my good friend and co-host, Patrick. Hello. Chris, again, unfortunately, will not be joining us, but we have an all-star guest, a favorite of the show. Uh, Fans are are always sending letters, physical letters, asking for Dr. Katie. How are you, Katie? (laughs) Oh, you're a liar, and I love you for it, Stephen. <laughs> so, uh, what's been up with you, Katie? It's been a been a minute since you've been on the show. Have you had Have you watched any horror stuff since since we saw Splice? I think it was right. Yeah, last time I joined you was for Splice, and I have been watching some horror content recently. I think this counts. I've been binge watching seasons two and three of Dragula. Yes. Oh, nice drag. Filth, horror, horror. glamour. She's a killer queen. queen. <laughs> yeah, it was recommended to me by Patrick and Allison with a Y. And I'm obsessed. You've actually inspired me to want to go back and uh, watch season two, which I, I was, we were obsessed with season three. And then season two, for some reason, just wasn't quite doing it and now i want to go back and revisit so i can talk to you about all the all the queens all the looks all the all the cat fights all the good stuff well the production value for season three was so much better it was so much more watchable than season two but there are so many looks at challenges in season two that make it worth it that yeah go back and watch it and we will talk (laughs) Steven, what kind of horror business have you been up to lately? Um, I have a couple of things that are uh, interesting. Um, one that I know you watched as well that we still haven't had a chance to discuss at length. And which we must not discuss at length on this podcast, right? We now, will not. We, must we try need to... and restrain ourselves from discussing at length. Yes, yes. We'll, we'll keep it brief. And then sometime soon, hopefully, you and I can get together and really uh, get into the weeds on it. But yeah. so two, ne- two Netflix original films based on novels that I would categorize as borderline horror uh, turned into films that uh, are quite different from the source material in some ways. Um, the first one, which I don't think you watched, Patrick, but Allison with a Y did, uh, The Devil All the Time came out last week based on the Donald Ray Pollock kind of gritty southern gothic novel um it's it's kind of hard to even explain the plot of this thing because it's about three or four or five uh, kind of intersecting narratives uh one of which and this is there's horror in every character's life in this thing but there's also like a serial killer couple on the loose in the midst of all of this insanity involving you know a, a priest who uh pours spiders over the top of his head to demonstrate his faith um there's there's a young kid who whose uh father dies in a gruesome way and we see him trying to kind of escape life in this really dark small town and you're going to see Tom Holland beat the living fuck out of people in this movie. I think that's really like my selling point. That's how dark this thing is. Tom Holland uh, does things you would never expect such a a seemingly pure boy to do. I mean, frankly, that got my attention. 
Yeah. Um, and the cast is stacked. Uh, Robert Pattinson is in this. I'm, I'm like, I'm just blanking right now, but uh, well worth checking out. It's it's kind of like real life horror, I guess. Um, everyday occurrences that are just kind of filmed and portrayed in like this super grimy, gross, gritty way. Uh, that, that's an exaggeration of reality. The other Netflix film I watched, which Patrick did as well, is the adaptation of Ian Reid's 2016 novel, I'm Thinking of Ending Things, a book that, would you agree, Patrick, that you could you could put that book in the horror section at Barnes & Noble? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, the book is definitely horror. The movie is definitely, the movie's definitely horror, although I would say the ending and the way things wrap up definitely take kind of a different turn. Um, I also read the book since last episode as well, so there's been a lot of thinking of ending things in my life since last episode <laughs> yeah really interesting movie again we're not allowed to talk about it at length i mean and we say that only because like we'll just we're just going to talk about it for like a fucking hour if we really get started oh it, it could be a mini episode in the future maybe yeah. but we're not going to subject katie to that right now no. um but it's so that, i mean it, just to briefly sort of describe the plot of this thing to to so listeners can decide if they're interested if they haven't heard of it you know, the, the book, it's easier to describe the book, I think. It's a road trip between a, a couple, it's male and female, told mostly through the inner dialogue of the female half of the couple. And at the beginning of the story, she's off, you know, to drive through the snow into the country to meet his parents. And from the outset, she's thinking of ending things, which you can interpret in a number of different ways. And the phrase sort of takes on a new meaning as the story progresses. We meet the family in the farmhouse and things just kind of start to descend into chaos from there. Right? Is that a pretty uh, accurate, succinct description? You can't say any more about it than that, frankly. The movie, interestingly, directed by by Charlie Kaufman, uh, is a decidedly different take on the book i mean it keeps sort of the basic plot beats but it it's it's almost it's almost a genre unto itself i would say what what he's done with this thing yeah i don't know if i would go that far but i enjoyed the book i enjoyed the movie thought the movie went in some interesting new directions and about half to two-thirds the way through i was like this is my favorite fucking thing i've seen this year and then in in the final act um yeah he, he makes some interesting choices that kind of rubbed me the wrong way at first and then when i thought about it i was like i don't really see how this actually accomplished anything too different from the end of the book it seems at first like a radical departure but then it really isn't so i don't know both are a wild experience that i would recommend to anyone sure i feel the same way they're both wild experiences that ultimately left me feeling a little cold and empty in the end but well worth the ride and what a ride each of those is well, speaking of wild experiences that left me extremely cold and empty, in addition, I'm thinking of ending things. I also watched Antebellum this past weekend. Oh, that's right. Holy shit. It is bad. Dude. Oh, watch. really? Yeah, it is bad. Ooh, even though I cannot condone recommending it to anyone, I also sort of want additional people to watch it so that I can talk to them about it because there are just ways in which it's bad that I'm still unpacking and actively having trouble understanding. It is just, it's, whew, it's bad. It's offensive. And especially for Janelle Monet, who is fucking great and so smart and amazing to be in it. I don't even know how she looked at the script and thought that it was a good idea. I'm just... It is, it's mind-boggling. Okay, now I want to watch it even more. <laughs> that was my oh my reaction. God, yes. Because 
I want to when Patrick told me about it in the first place a couple of days ago. I mean, it looked it looked like it was supposed to be so good. That's marketing for you. Yeah, it's a good trailer. And now I want to see why it's really not, and then yeah. we can talk about it. Exactly. I cannot recommend it to either of you, but I really hope you both watch it. <laughs> <laughs> when I don't have to pay for it, I'll check it out. <laughs> I'll watch that while you watch Dragula season two. Yes. Yes. I love it. I've also been continuing our Nightmare on Elm Street journey. We've got a long road to travel of watching every movie in the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise to review those all later in October. Now four movies through and having a great time. Uh, really, I'm just saying this to continue plugging and building up the hype for that episode because I think it'll be fun. I've yet to watch a single film in the series for this episode, I should say. I've seen most of them. Um, I think maybe the remake is the only one I haven't seen in the series. But I mean, obviously, I'm going to revisit. So they're fresh in my mind for the for the episode. But um, I lo- I'm I'm inspired by Patrick really getting on top of things. I'm too much of a procrastinator. Yeah, I got to I gotta pace myself out. I mean, I do love the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, but even I can't watch fucking nine Nightmare on Elm Street movies in a week. That's, that's too much even for me. Even I would ask for Freddy to come after me in that case. Well, let me tell you, this is, I guess this is a little tease to get our, I have something to offer to get our listeners excited in the way that you keep doing. I'm adding to my homework. I am also, and this actually is a good tie-in for the movie we're about to talk about in a minute here. I'm also going to watch the first episode of Freddy's Nightmares in preparation, uh, which was directed by Toby Hooper. Dude, I was thinking about doing that too. I'm totally going to do it as well now because I've been fascinated by the fact that there's a fucking Freddy TV show for so long i've never seen any of it though so i think freddie goes on trial in the first episode it sounds wild what the um, fuck? all right so that's a good segue we are here to talk about 1982's poltergeist directed by toby hooper and steven spielberg we'll just say that at the outset <laughs> oh wow hot take they both deserve credit and I, I chose this movie to remind our listeners because, one, I love this movie. I've seen it a million times. It's a movie that when I had cable, if it was on, when I was flipping through the channels, every time it came on, I just couldn't stop watching, um, no matter what point in the movie it was at. But this is a little tribute to uh, our former mascot, my my beloved feline familiar, Toby. And, uh, yeah, I just thought it seemed appropriate. But also, it's spooky season. You know, it's officially fall it's time to start watching some Stone Cold classics, Hell at yeah. least in my household. And this was my first time seeing it, was in yes. preparation for this episode. Yeah, so Katie, you know, obviously we're going to get into it. That's what the show's about. But initial impressions. Thank you for inviting me to be on this episode so that I could watch this movie. Hell my life yeah. is better for it. Yes. Oh, yeah, that's what I want to <laughs> hear. I loved it. Well, should we go down to the spoiler room? <laughs> I mean, when it comes to a classic movie like this, I, I'm I'm philosophically conflicted because I feel like who's going to listen to to us, to these assholes, not Katie, you're not an asshole, but who's going to listen to these assholes to decide if they want to listen to a movie that gets talked about fucking everywhere because it's a classic? Like, I feel like we can just sort of let it all hang out. What do you think, Patrick? Yeah, I mean, I I always prefer the brief, brief synopsis anyways. And I think 
we can at least just start with a brief, brief synopsis and, and go from there. But I mean, obviously the premise, if you haven't heard, seen, uh, you know, picked it up by osmosis somewhere in our culture and however long that you've been on the earth, there's a family, they live in a suburban house. Uh, there's, there's a poltergeist haunting the house. It comes through the TV. There's a little girl kneeling in front of the TV who says they're here. Iconic moment. Everybody's probably seen it. And, you know, shit proceeds from there. That's the that's the official synopsis of Poltergeist. I didn't make that up. I just read that off IMDb. That's uh that's pretty much your movie. I mean that scene, the the the, the there here scene is so iconic that like I would not be surprised if there was like a beer commercial in the nineties that parodied it. Oh my god, that's honestly so There's on point. There's beer. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god, I want to do that. There needs to be some viral content for our social media that involves that. So this is your typical, you know, okay, so first of all, a little, little tiny bit of background. Uh, this was initially, this initially came from a pitch. Steven Spielberg was a huge fan of, of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And the, the original germ for this movie actually came from Toby Hooper, who met with Steven Spielberg and kind of pitched the original concept of what would come to be Poltergeist. He didn't end up actually writing it. Spielberg sent it to some other writers. He took some from their drafts and wrote his own version. Uh, but it's, this pro- it took a couple of years for this thing to kick off. And how crazy is this? And this was a really big movie. I mean, especially for a for a horror movie. This came out within like months of E.T., which at the time mm. was like the biggest movie of all time mm-hmm. at the box office. Like what a year for Spielberg. Mm-hmm. And the films are very similar in, I think, what they're attempting to do thematically. These are both movies that have kind of that classic Spielberg thing where – like there's evil under the surface of ordinary everyday suburban life, evil or mystery, and the adults don't know how to deal with it. So it's left in the hands of the kids. These are both like children in peril movies to a T, which listeners will probably know I'm a huge fan of. Fuck you, Roger Ebert. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, Spielberg kind of saw this as like an opportunity to do a kind of darker or more horror ish take on the ground he'd already tread with like close encounters right seems to be so i mean he was also working around the time that this was in development he was working on a screenplay called dark skies he made et instead but dark skies was like if et was a horror movie <laughs> like like a family on a farm gets terrorized and et is fucking scary to me i was but gonna t- say et is a horror movie et is horrifying looking my uncle was like terrified just absolutely morally terrified of et growing up so yeah et is at least somewhat horror to me dark skies i've read quite a bit about it over the years it sounds like it sounds like it basically turned into gremlins which steven spielberg produced but it really sounds like it's it's like what we know as et meets gremlins where there's like a good alien that that comes to earth and a bunch of like really like colorfully bad evil aliens come to try and kill him reclaim him i have no idea the early 80s were fucking weird guys yeah the two things that i love about this movie and and that really stuck with me when i revisited it recently you know i think i mentioned a few episodes ago i i watched it um because we were watching the the cursed Films series on shutter and and watching the the films that corresponded to each episode of the cursed films documentary series 
Um, so I watched this recently for the first time in like, I don't know, probably 10 years or something. And I was like, I didn't have any great memory of it necessarily, any particularly strong memory other than, you know, the iconic moment that I already described. And so I wasn't quite sure how I was going to respond to it, but I was like, fuck, this is entertaining as hell, you know? And, uh, to me, the strengths are appealing actors, like good cast, um, who create, you know, stock characters, but still characters that you enjoy and that distinguish themselves a bit from just your, your total archetypes and also great practical effects. Like there are so many memorable, horrifying, creepy moments in this movie created through just old fashioned movie magic. Absolutely. And I love a good practical effect. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, probably the most iconic practical effect in this is the scene where Joe Beth Williams and, and, uh, and, because I, I can't remember what her character's name is. And, and Carol Ann, the little girl, are in the kitchen. Carol Ann's got her face pressed up against the <laughs> TV. And we see the, we see through a misdirect, like Patrick said, classic, you know, movie magic. We see through a misdirect that, like, the poltergeist, the entity, very quickly rearranges the dining room chairs into, like, a pyramid on top of the dining room table when mm-hmm. Joe Beth turns away and goes to get some 409 to clean up a mess. And, like, that was all... It's all in camera. It's one take. Apparently, there were just a... They, they had people, like, all around the set ready to run in the room very quickly and move things oh as God. the camera moved away. And to hear Toby Hooper say it, it sounded like there was a cattle stampede when he was watching the dailies. You know, obviously, they had to redo all the <laughs> audio for that scene because you can hear the guys running in and out to grab the chairs and put in this this prop of all the chairs stacked in a pyramid on top of the table. That was done in one take? There wasn't a cut in there? There's no cut in there. Dang. The camera just pans away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, even knowing that, I watched it a couple more times. I'm like, it's it happens so quickly. I, I I still almost can't envision how they did it, even though even though I know what the secret is. And that's the kind of stuff that just as a viewer, it doesn't matter if this came out in 1982. I watched this with somebody who hasn't seen a lot of older movies and generally tends to think that movies have gotten better over time. So why bother going back? And even he was like, whoa, how do they do that? Like, it just feels magical. It gives you a little tingle up your spine. Yeah. See, now that I know that, I love that scene even more because I thought it was great. I love those scenes where, you know, the furniture, like furniture gets rearranged or unexpected things like that happen. But now that I know that they actually did that in real time, mad respect. And I'm also kind of somebody who I don't go back and watch older movies because I'm like, oh, I don't know if this is going to seem cheesy or if this is going to hold up. But the effects in this one did. And they were legit, a lot of legit scares and creepy moments. And some of the puppetry that they did with some of the creatures. Oh, the clown wrapping its arm in circles around the boy's neck. Like, I, I don't know how they did that, but it looks so convincing. In like the second set of attacks, there's... um when Diane, the mom, is trying to get into the kids' room, there's that, like, white, spindly, skeletal dog-looking sort of thing in front of the door. Um, I I wrote it in my notes as the door guardian. It's perfect. Like, it could have been cheesy, because it was an older effect, but it just wasn't. It looks legitimately otherworldly. Like, even to this day, it still is just like an image that has sunken into my mind and gives me the legit creeps. (laughs) Or like when the skull comes out of the closet and you see it in profile. Yeah. That got me. Like I had a jump scare there. 
because I was I didn't see it coming. And so even though this is older and some of the effects, you know, are not as like I guess finessed or shiny as they would be in movies these days, yeah. I found them so effective. I was really delighted by the movie and ashamed that I haven't watched it sooner. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a testament just to uh, sort of the the brilliance of the effects and what we're talking about here, that when Stephen referred to uh, the most famous or most well-known practical effect in the movie, they like two or three different things popped into my mind that I thought you were going to talk about. You know, I thought of the scene where she keeps sliding across the floor, you know, I mean, what a, yeah. what, a what a great moment. And uh, the scene where uh, she's being sucked out of her bed into the closet, like also just horrifying, like the hairs on the back of my neck stand up through that whole scene and it looks so plausible. I don't know. There's just so many great examples. I mean, obviously we've just rattled off like, 10 of them just now for listeners we're on zoom of course like every podcast and when i started to give that preamble of like the most iconic scene i could see your eyes widen like (laughs) which one's he gonna mention um and as i said it myself i was like wait yeah there's a lot i mean this is just i don't know i keep we keep saying the word iconic there's no other way to describe it and it's amazing how well it holds up oh Uh, and the tree we didn't even mention the tree oh my god yeah yeah oh Watching it this time, I noticed that in the opening credits, there are really fucking creepy trees all over it, and they kind of hang over the town. Like, they look unnatural. They look like, you know, what you would imagine the Halloween tree from the Ray Bradbury book would look like. Um, They they look artificial, but they're real. I don't know what kind of tree it is. And it's like, you've got this very pleasant music, and there's these foreboding things creeping over. And then, you know, in the the backyard of of the house, uh, of the family that we're we're settled on, there's... There is this like really unnaturally lookingly creepy tree hanging out in the backyard. It's like dangerously close to the house is the kind of thing I used to worry about as a kid. Like it was going to fall and crush me during a storm. It makes creepy, you know, like demon hands outside the windows when it's, when the wind is blowing and eventually the little boy gets fucking eaten by it. I know. (laughs) Mm hmm. It's wild, it's so imaginative and strange, and yet gripping. Never for a moment did I feel challenged in suspending my disbelief, and I think part of that is because the casting is so brilliant. The characters aren't necessarily very well written, they're not terribly unique, but at the time, even um, Craig T. Nelson was like not a known actor. You know, so mm-hmm. he comes across as more of an everyman. He comes across as relatable, even though he's not really given a ton to do. That ma- That makes him seem unique as a character. Yeah, it's a nice confluence of believable performances and believable, innovative, imaginative effects. One last thing on the effects, at least for now. I I also like the way that you get kind of a range of tones within those big effects moments because, you know, that scene where she keeps putting the little girl down on the floor and she keeps sliding across the floor is is comic at first and almost a little whimsical while also being unsettling and a sign of you know the weird shit that's going on and i love that this movie has the iconic creepy moment but also that iconic i don't even know how to describe it like i said it's almost a whimsical moment you know within a very a very simple and slightly unnerving effect yeah and that moment too was just baffling for me because i'm like how is the mom she seemed genuinely excited by this and to be having fun with it i'm like if that were me, I would have been 
out of there in two <laughs> seconds. I wouldn't be subjecting my child to that. Be like, oh, you're moving chairs? Let's see if you can move my kid. Like, just stick a helmet on her. And well, that's like, okay. how are you not threatened by this? White people, am I right? There's <laughs> one reason this movie is just so, just, just holds up because a lot, you know, people don't behave in the way that you would expect them to based on horror conventions that we're used to. It feels there's a little bit of unpredictability to it, which I, I credit a bit to Toby Hooper because he's, you know, I mean, look no further than the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and this guy knows how to just completely upend your expectations every step of the way with what's going on, and and he knows how to direct actors to behave in unusual ways that feel natural in context. But I think that scene also speaks to what I see as one of the themes of the film, which is gullible consumerism and and like Reaganism. Like something fucked up happens in the house. She should be terrified and she immediately is just like caught up in its spell and like f- trying to find a way to exploit it. Th- that's, I don't know, it stands out to me. I don't know quite how to unpack it, but it seems of a piece with some of the other kind of satirical moments in the film like in the scene right before that like this this got a laugh out of me even after seeing this movie so many times while she and carol ann are in the kitchen carol ann has her face like right up against the tv with the static blaring and she says don't don't do that it'll ruin your eyes and then she flips a switch and it's like like graphic vietnam war footage like from Mm. the from the battleground (laughs) as if like that's okay I don't know. The adults are, I guess what I'm getting to is like the adults are just kind of clueless and that makes you feel more unsafe as a viewer because you know, they're not taking this as serious. They're not taking anything as seriously as they should. Yeah. There's, I would say certainly political significance to this movie that, um, I mean, is both just nakedly right there on the surface and also interestingly more subversive than maybe you expect given the tone of the movie and i I think that's probably something we could get into in the spoiler room um you know again for the two people out there who haven't seen this and don't know where it all winds up yeah there's there seems to be an underlying attitude with all of the adults of what could possibly go wrong Yes, Mm -hmm. exactly, Katie. That is a perfectly succinct way to say it. And there's so many moments throughout where that tone is taken. Like, even something that comes to mind is when Dana, the teenage daughter, is leaving on her bike and the construction workers, the adult men installing the pool in the backyard are hitting on her. And her mom is like watching from the kitchen window and everybody's like, oh, well, isn't that kind of funny and charming? And it's like gross and insidious. Like, Right. And then Dana just kind of like cheerily flips them off after that happens as well. There's also a very like kind of nonchalant resolution to that moment. And also nothing else really comes of that that I remember. No, but it's just to me, it's another example of that attitude of everything's harmless. It's all harmless. You know, yeah. Well, and there's an there's an intrusion before that. I mean, it's such a weird little moment in this movie, but there's a there's a moment where one of the guys working on installing the pool, it, it just kind of like inserts himself into the house, like through the kitchen window, mm-hmm. to drink coffee and eat like somebody's half-eaten bagel or something. And Joe Beth Williams just has this like super cutesy way of treating it. It's like this guy's a fucking creep. He's hitting on you. He's gonna hit on your daughter in a minute. He's like in your house eating your food drinking coffee out of the cup she was drinking out of and she's just like oh men and shuts the window on him and i have a feeling that was intentional it feels like a very 
sort of dated portrayal of that kind of situation, but I, I think that was intentional. They have such a sense of privilege that they are naive. Yeah, they're just naive and innocent. So kind of the perfect host for the for the poltergeist, the titular poltergeist. Because they just they're- kind of like let it in so almost and accept that this is what's happening. All their defenses are down from the beginning of this movie, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think there's certainly a theme with sort of an overabundance of comfort with the concept of invasion or intrusion. There's a kind of a very central, crucial intrusion that's been made here that's caused this whole situation in the yes. first place. And, I, you know, I think you could certainly draw a sort of a through line about just American society's comfort with those small intrusions that we treat as uh, just normal or sort of par for the white American course. It's sort of about as well, just like the kind of the falsehoods upon which the American dream was built upon in a lot of mm-hmm. ways too. I mean, Craig T. Nelson is like a realtor who, who works for the land developer who, who built this, this idyllic suburb and there's a great scene where he you get to see after like fucked up stuff starts going on in his house you get to see him put on his fake smile and try and sell an identical model to another family and like even i don't know i mean watching it this time i noticed that like the walls are dirty as if it had been lived in before but it's just so it's just so funny to see him just like be like yeah i don't care if i doom another family i got a job to do i gotta i gotta sell this house yeah, and it's an interesting movie too because it all still feels fun. It feels like it feels like entertainment. This is an entertaining movie, but it does have some fairly grim themes and grim implications as far as what it's saying about American culture. But I'm glad that it's sort of a a poison pill in that way and that it doesn't just feel like a big dark movie about America. I I think it does have things to say about America, but it's all kind of wrapped up in this you know, piece of pop entertainment, which I always appreciate a work that can do that. Yeah, it's, I don't know, it's interesting too to think that like, this is a PG movie at a time when that meant something very different. And and yet every time I watch it, I, I'm kind of reminded again of how much subversion there is in it and how much like just sort of weird stuff involving the family dynamics that you really, I don't think, didn't see in other filmmakers' work until maybe the last couple of decades. Like, the scene that always stands out to me is in, in one of the early nights of staying in this house, when they're still unpacking things, when, when Craig T. Nelson and Joe Beth just, like, fucking light up a joint in their bedroom while they're mm. well, right after they put the kids to bed. And Craig T. Nelson is, like, very obviously reading a flattering book about Reagan. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. Like, I don't even know what that means again. Exactly. But but I kind of like it because it immediately makes me realize like, oh, these people are not the best equipped to take care of their children, (laughs) (laughs) which is also one of my favorite like acting scenes in the movie, because first of all, like I just I love how you do get a sense of actual affection between these two and they seem like an actual couple, but also they play high quite convincingly. 
Oh yeah, it's great. I mean, this the thing that I that I always remember. It's a super uncomfortable moment is when Craig T. Nelson is like shirtless, and you know he's got a dad bod to be charitable, and he's just like doing kind of the before after sucking his gut in and out in front of the mirror, <laughs> like just yeah. so amused with himself, and it feels so real. I feel like Craig T. Yeah. Nelson just smoked a J right before shooting that scene and was <laughs> improvising. <laughs> Yeah. But it's great because it just it makes you feel more grounded, which is really important in a movie where things get so wildly fantastical, you know, as the proceedings go on. Yeah, and I think it really grounds them as humans too, and they're not just like the parent roles, as you can see who they are mm-hmm. as individuals outside of being parents. And that I think isn't isn't always present in horror movies a lot of times. You know, there's, like you've said, there's the archetypes, but with them, you get to see a bit more of their personality aside from being the, you know, the prototypical parent. Yeah. And it feels real and it feels like something that they invested time and care in and that the filmmakers invested time and care in as opposed to this, I don't know, so often with some of these movies we watch, there's this, these almost like sociopathic moments of character development air quotes where it's like oh yeah we should write some dialogue where they like kind of banter a little bit so that they seem more real you know and it just you know it just feels very assembly line turn of the crank uh characterization whereas this felt like something that you know as i said some some actual care and some some concern for the characters was invested in so to kind of set up you know the the escalating conflict of this movie and how it kind of rides out to the finish. Carol Ann gets sucked into another dimension. And, you know, the last act or so of the movie is uh, the family and some paranormal investigators trying to trying to bring her back to the, the real world, to our plane. That actually interested me because, you know, I, I, I've seen so many horror movies, but I don't have the best concept of history and chronology sometimes. But that's such a trope, you know, the family who brings in the sort of quirky paranormal investigators to uh, exercise the home or whatever. Is this at all a progenitor of that trope or are there a lot of examples before this of that that I'm not thinking of? Because I saw that and I'm like, oh, this is, you know, the proto-conjuring and, you know, seemingly every other horror movie that does that these days. It's a lot like an exorcism, I think, if you really boil it down. So I would say at the very least, The Exorcist got there first. It feels different just because of the context and the stakes are different here. But it's very similar, I think, to uh, the story of the priest trying to exercise Reagan in The Exorcist. Mm, at least mm-hmm. at least as far as the beats go mm-hmm. um and yet to use the word iconic again it feels like this is something fresh that you'd never seen anything like before because of the way it's handled and because of the bizarre creatures and the the kind of um i don't know the iconography of this other world and the quirky uh sort of medium that they bring in played by zelda rubenstein who just is so inimitable so uh, good but but that's a good point. It does feel like it got there first, and I, I think it just reinvented that trope, maybe, and made it yeah. feel fresh, which is all yeah. I ever want in a horror movie, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, Katie, I, I feel like you reviewed this movie at the, <laughs> in the first five minutes of this episode, but I'm so curious, <sighs> as a first-time viewer, would you view it, cue it, or screw it? Oh, 100% view it. If you haven't already, do yourself a favor and just view it. I'm disappointed in myself that I was so late to the party. 
Love it. I've never met anybody who I've I've shown this to for the first time. Which has really only been a couple of people, if I'm perfectly honest, who didn't feel the same way. I've never seen The Exorcist, so we could do that sometime too. Ooh. We could. Oh, I've got some hot takes on The Exorcist. Love to break it down with you. When that winds up on Netflix, we're giving you a call. Awesome. Patrick, view it cute or screw it. What do you say? Oh, view it, of course. I mean, it's a classic and with good reason. You know, as I said, uh, I remembered liking it in the first place, but honestly, it was so much more enjoyable than I remembered. So, yeah, of course, view it. And Steven? Oh, yeah. I mean, of course, view it. Like uh, this time around, I will say it felt a little baggy in places. And that could just be because I've seen it so many times and I was looking for like, We've talked about how the characters are so grounded and how the performances are so grounded. Um, But it felt to me like there's definitely more of an emphasis on special effects than character in this movie. So, I, you know, I felt a little cold in places. But, I mean, god damn. It's just so inventive and so so unique. And there's so much quirk in this thing. And there's so many iconic, you know, monster moments and gore moments. It's it's a fucking blast. It's a roller coaster. View it hardcore. All right. Well, hey, before we go down to the spoiler room, as usual, going to take the usual opportunity to remind you all to visit our website at everyhorrormovieonnetflix.com. Click that link that says buy merch. That'll take you to our store where you can buy our T-shirt or, you know, have our logo slapped onto a coffee cup or whatever else floats your boat. Follow us on social media. Uh, we're at Amoncast, E-H-M-O-N-Cast, on all the social networks, or at least all the ones that matter. You know, if we're not on them, probably no one cares. And also don't forget to uh, go review, rate us, and subscribe to us on your podcast uh, provider of choice and tell your friends about us because, you know, obviously it's always good if more people can join us on this journey. All right. We're going to we're gonna walk down, deep down to the end of the empty in-ground spoiler pool in the backyard and i hope to god it doesn't fill up with water and skeletons see you guys in a few minutes all right Welcome back to the show. We're down here in the spoiler room. We're going to spoil everything. Thank God. No rain or skeletons down here yet. I mean, on your end, I'm down here fucking treading water with a skull. Do you guys know those are, those are, this is really cool. And it was kind of an urban legend for a while, but it's actually true. The skeletons in this movie are real skeletons that were ordered from India. I had heard that, that it was like cheaper to get real skeletons than fake ones, which blows my mind it's not just that they're cheaper which is true it's that if you just buy like medical you know skeletons made out of fiberglass or whatever the fuck they make them out of they all look the same right they don't have any personality so if you get real skeletons they each look a little bit different and the special effects guys can do they can give them personality and i'll say the skeletons in this movie have a they're a mood (laughs) each one of them looks very different and i really appreciate that ethically it's more than a little iffy well especially especially considering the major revelation of this movie (laughs) major ick factor yeah it's such a horrifying scene like jesus that pool is just sitting there it's been being dug the entire movie you 
you know, you, you know it's going to have some significance at some point, but you just, at least I was never expecting that either time that I saw this movie. Uh, yeah, not at all. And I loved yeah, it. I'm, I'm terrified of dark water. I've seen swimming pools, and yes, multiple, at least two I can think of that have just been left to sit for like multiple seasons and stuff starts growing in them like fungus and it becomes its own little ecosystem. And like, that's what I imagine this pool being like. And it's fucking terrifying to me. Probably as a kid, when I saw these, these things, I poltergeist influenced my fear. And I thought there might be human remains down there as well. Yeah. It's the stuff of nightmares for sure. It's nasty. So should we just kind of, Get this out of the way. The major revelation, yeah, of the movie. Do you want to set it up, Patrick? Do you want to do you want to blow the cork off this thing? Yeah. So essentially, the house and the entire subdivision that they live in, this beautiful, you know, idyllic American dream place, uh, has been built on a former cemetery, and most crucially, uh, the bodies were not removed. The the thing is built on top of bodies, like the bodies that we see in the pool. Which sets up an iconic moment. Yeah, and we just, this amazing moment where Craig T. Nelson, because he's going to be Craig T. Nelson, who cares what his character's name was, is shouting at the developer, you removed the headstones, but you didn't remove the bodies. Great. It's great. Classic line that I, I feel like Chris has said that line on this show before. (laughs) Yeah, weirdly, I almost, when I imagine that line, I hear it almost in Chris's voice more than Craig T. Nelson's voice for some reason. It's a super creepy revelation. I love it. Um, but also, it, it's where, and I haven't done a lot of deep analysis on this or anything, but I, I, I commented before the spoiler room break somewhere in the, first, in, in the first half of the episode that I feel like one of the themes in this movie is like kind of covering up like the the sins of the the sins of the past and as, as specifically when it comes to the American dream, and like you couldn't get more literal than this. <laughs> Well, yeah, and and we were discussing during the break, you know, Stephen and I both mistakenly thought that this was a Native American burial ground and, and found out that, no, in fact, it's not. And also, this is a common misperception about the movie. But I think it may be a common misperception just because it fits that theme so well. You know, you're you're, you're thinking of it in an even more literal and, and historical sense of white Caucasian American culture paving over what came before it in that sort of traditional way that uh, is is also represented in, you know, like The Shining and other horror yes. movies as well. So I think it's an easy sort of conclusion to jump to once you uh, have, have a little distance from the movie or have a terrible memory like you and I do, Stephen. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I, I brought this up earlier, but this plays into it as well. There's this this motif of this creepy, these creepy, gnarly trees. And there is almost kind of like you can connect the dots between this line of these trees that lead into like down the hill from the cemetery and into the the community, into the suburb. And that's just such a strong visual metaphor. I mean, thinking about sort of the roots of evil, the roots of corruption of sort of blind selfishness whatever themes you want to read into it it's just it's just a really cool powerful visual motif that i appreciate it yeah see i never caught that i didn't catch that visual with the trees and now i want to go back and look for it again katie i only have because i've seen this movie so many times i like, i didn't think about that until this this watch and yeah it's it's absolutely brilliant this is just such a such a tight movie so packed with ideas well yeah what other what other ground do we need to cover here i mean we didn't really talk about zelda rubin 
Frankenstein much. I'm not the hugest fan of her, but I, I can tell you guys both love her. See, oh my god! I really did. Heaven, get the fuck out. Uh-huh. <laughs> She's such a gem. I mean, I, like it was a thing as a kid to like do that voice, you know that that she has. She's so so unusual. Um, She's but distinctive. Also, think, She's a very distinctive character. That's for sure. For sure, and a distinctive performer as well. Um, mm-hmm. And and uh, you know, I say this is probably her second greatest performance after Teen Witch. Shh. I knew you. Yeah, I knew you were going there. <laughs> yeah, so we get these kind of quirky paranormal investigators that come in. There's a lot, lots of spooky monster shit, and you know, kind of the, the kind of the, you know, a progenitor of the, um, the what the upside down from Stranger Things almost, where you know Carol Ann is caught in this sort of alternate plane of reality where, where the spirits have complete power and. There's just lots of fun, big moments with lots of wind blowing in the house and strobe lights flashing, trying to get her back from this other side. But we get Carol Ann back, you know, we get her out of the portal. Everything seems to be fine. Of course, it's not. See, I thought it was. I thought it was just like, so at the end of the first series of hauntings, you know, Zelda Rubenstein says, you know, this house is clear. Yes. And she leaves, the paranormal investigators leave, and, like, the kids are going to bed. And I thought that the movie was actually going to end at that point. Like, there would be a hint that it wasn't quite over. Mm -hmm. And then the movie would end on that. Because that seems to me what so many movies do. Like, oh, oh, it's not really over. But not only is it not over, but we go into full-on round two where it levels up. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I'm so glad that it does, too, because I hate, I've talked about this so many times, I hate those movies where everything seems to be okay, and then there's one final sting that shows you that it's not all okay, and then it's credits. I vastly prefer this huge, like, just next-level, cathartic final round of, of haunting and horror and a conclusive ending where, like, this is settled, you know, I mean, which actually it isn't, but because there's a poltergeist two and three, but within the text of the movie, it's over. That's the end. And I, I love that. I love that. I don't want to fucking sequel tease, you know? Yeah, me too. Cause I totally expected that the, the little tease and then the credits, but they gave us next level throwing everything they have at it with the door guardian. And yeah. you it looks like the closet turns into like the, these spindly wormy mm. type fibers start coming out of the closet and it looks like a throat or something. Yeah. And mm-hmm. um, just everything gets so much more intense. And then the whole neighborhood starts to go and then the house like implodes and gets torn away. And I'm like, this is insane. Oh my God, I'm this watching is- this just like with this, I, I imagine was a look of like, horror and delight on my face the whole time because it was so unexpected and so fun the way that oh my god the shot of the house imploding like you know obviously it's a little rough because this is an older film but i think it looks fucking amazing i don't know how they did that for the time i love it gorgeous it's gorgeous i mean also again like how much more conclusive can you get and and cathartic can you get for the ending of this movie than the house imploding (laughs) it's great all of these skeletons are coming up in the yard trying to prevent them from leaving the house. And like yeah. these caskets are shooting up and opening and oh my God. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, what a ride. I love it. What a ride. Well, and the family is also notably fatherless, or should I say Craig T. Nelson-less for this final round. And also the teenage daughter, Dana, is gone. And I'm, I'm not sure exactly why that choice was made. I think you could certainly read some things into it thematically about the father being absent for this final confrontation, but not not exactly sure why they made that choice, especially with the teenage daughter taking her out of it. Uh, she was absent for most of the movie. Like, yeah, it's, it's super weird that she's even in this movie at all. But like, I feel like there was a tragic backstory for the actress as well. Didn't she get murdered or something? Yeah. Am I remembering that right from Curse Films? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. She was yeah. strangled by her ex-boyfriend, actually. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I mean, I think the kind of the common, you know, element of the curse that people talk about with this film is the little girl who played Carol Ann dying, but obviously an extremely tragic end for this actress who played Dana as well in real life. Yeah, and we should say Carol Ann, you know, she she filmed both sequels. I don't know if she made it all the way through the filming of the third one, but she died of like she had a couple of really rare diseases, right? Well, yeah, that was a horrifying story because I believe she had some kind of like a, a bowel or like an intestinal obstruction. Yeah, it was something that horrified me and that I am now worried that I have all the time, to be quite honest. Yeah, and I thought I said on um, Wikipedia that it led to sepsis. Yes. That's horrible. And she was like very, very young still at the time. I think she was 12, yeah. Yeah, and they had not completed filming on Poltergeist 3 at that point. And, oh man, just if you haven't seen the Cursed Films episode on this, like go sign up for the Shutter trial and watch the series in general. It's very well done, but the episode on this was especially moving because like no one on that movie wanted to finish making it and the studio forced them to go back. And it's incredible and really heartbreaking actually to see how upset some of these people still are because they just apparently well i mean she's 12 it's not like anybody's like a dick when they're 12 but this was apparently like a really nice person that everybody loved everybody loved this little actress and um they were very very upset about having to go back and shoot some scenes with doubles to fill in for her and um yeah it's pretty pretty tragic story has anyone seen the Two sequels, either of them? Have you seen them, Stephen? No, I've always been curious, too. I mean, they're supposed to be really bad, but I think it's the third one that it's like a high-rise apartment building that's haunted. I remember I used to, as a teenager, my friends and I used to frequent this site called badmovies.org that was a catalog of just, you know, terrible movies and it featured clips and trivia and photos and like i just remember seeing like insane scenes of like lamps coming alive and killing people it's very like (laughs) how (laughs) sue-esque oh my god i kind of want to see that now yeah i do too and whenever they pop up on streaming i'm like i should finally do that but that's like i feel like that's like a spoop night sort of thing you know i want i want a group of friends a six pack of beers yeah maybe a 12 pack Mm. yeah some natty light (laughs) (laughs) just get high school drunk well we still haven't gotten to the biggest spoiler in the movie yet which is that steven spielberg actually directed it okay i'm gonna read you guys a quote so a little bit (laughs) a little bit of backstory you know this movie is very very controversial so toby hooper is the credited director on the film and 
there was a lot of controversy on the set. Steven Spielberg, you know, this was kind of his baby. He kind of shepherded the final draft of the script um, based on a draft that a couple of other writers wrote. He was on set for a lot of the movie. He contractually could not direct the film, but he was allowed to be on set as a producer. And if you look at photos of this movie, you see Steven Spielberg pretty heavily in action. And Toby Hooper might seem like a madman from the films that he was famous for at the time, but he was actually a pretty meek, gentle guy. And Steven Spielberg, uh, this being his baby, really asserted himself on the set. So I'm going to leave the final word to Mick Garris, the you know famous f- filmmaker, journalist, fiction writer, podcaster, he actually, one of his first jobs was as a, as a publicist for Universal, I think, put this film out, could be wrong about that, but he was a publicist, he was on set for a lot of this movie and got to see how it was made and turn it into, you know, a PR campaign. So this is what he had to say a couple of years ago to finally settle this controversy. I was doing publicity on Poltergeist. And a lot of people were talking about the Spielberg and Toby Hooper situation. From my perspective, it was Toby's first studio movie. He's on the studio lot on a big soundstage. Steven Spielberg had written the shooting script, was on the set and was producing. And Spielberg is a consummate filmmaker. He lives and breathes movies. Very passionate, very intelligent, very articulate. And yes, I would see him climb on the camera and say, maybe we should push in on a two shot here or do this or that there. And Toby would be watching. Toby was always calling action and cut, though. Toby had been deeply involved in all the pre-production and everything. But Steven is a guy who will come in and call the shots. And so you're on your first studio film hired by Steven Spielberg, who is enthusiastically involved in this movie. Are you going to say, stop that? Let me do this, which Toby didn't do. And Garris continued, making his point clear as day, Toby directed that movie. Steven Spielberg had a lot to do with directing that movie, too. That controversy still hangs there, but Toby is so much a crucial part of that movie, and watching both of them work on that film was a fascinating learning experience for me. Toby was a terrific filmmaker. I don't think it's that Steven Spielberg was controlling. I think it was that Steven was enthusiastic, and nobody was there to protect Toby, but all the pre-production was done by Toby. Toby was there throughout. Toby's vision is very much realized there, and Toby got credit because he deserved credit. And Steven Spielberg said that. Well, God bless. At the end of the day, Steven Spielberg was very much involved, but it's a Toby Hooper movie. And if you look at the films he made around that time, if you look at The Fun House, if you look at Salem's Lot, if you look at Life Force even, to me, you can can tell it's the same guy. Um, I think Spielberg even borrowed a little bit from his visual aesthetic in some of his films because he admired him so much. So I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to leave it there. I'm going to trust Mick Garris on this one and put the mystery to bed. Well, God bless. It's a beautiful thing. Do we have anything else to say about it, or should we figure out what we're watching for next episode? I mean, I could talk about this movie all day, probably, but that's enough for now. Katie, any any final thoughts? I hate clowns. (laughs) Oh, this clown. Oh, man, when its face changes. Oh, creepy stuff. And I'm not afraid of clowns. Good, good stuff. Good stuff. All right, so it's time to spin the wheel of death. Katie, since you're here as our guest today, would you do us the honor of spinning the wheel? 
Oh, absolutely. All right. Give her a spin. What's it going to be? Oh, shit. It's Sinister Circle. What the fuck is Sinister what Circle? Isn't that fuck? a Creedence Clearwater Revival song? I don't get that reference, but as soon as the word Sinister came out of your mouth, I thought it was part of that franchise. Uh, it's not. Do you want the Google one-sentence synopsis? It's a Spanish-language film. Yes, please, Katie. A skeptical psychologist and her mute son face evil at the sight of a terrible tragedy involving a secret society and an ancestral Ouija board. Ooh. Ancestral Ouija board. Oh, my God. That is a lifestyle right there. <laughs> it's a Peruvian series, I think. The first one in the series. Mm-hmm. Wow. I don't wow. think we've ever, we've definitely never reviewed a Peruvian film for the podcast. No. So this is great. Little, uh, another cultural journey for us. So I think we'll learn a lot. Yeah. So, um, you know, again, just to kind of echo the business from before the spoiler room break, we love it when you guys reach out to us and engage with us, give us ideas, give us feedback, or just tell us you, you love us in general. Send us a letter to say you love Katie and that yes. she's the only person you want to hear on this show. Include a lock of your hair to show how much you love the guys. Whoa, whoa. Weird. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Well, uh, until next time, for every horror movie on Netflix, I'm Steven. I'm Patrick, and I don't want to lock your hair, just to be clear. Just to be clear. (laughs) And I'm Katie. Bye, everybody.